I hope you enjoyed singing those songs. John Kent, the shipwright from England, 200 years ago writing, "'Twas with an everlasting love," speaking of our eternal justification and union with Christ. Wonderful doctrine in those songs. Open your Bible with me to Proverbs chapter 11. Proverbs chapter 11. At 4 o'clock this afternoon in Eastern Daylight Savings Time, the majority of what I'm about to say to you will be sent to 15,000 subscribers to our daily proverb and commentary. And I hope that I can share some of that with you, and maybe a little bit extra, but not much, about soul winning. And I hope that it fits perfectly well with Romans chapter 10 and verse 1, that we would have the same kind of heart's desire and prayer to God for the conversion of God's elect that Paul did. Proverbs chapter 11, the 30th verse, is a proverb of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he that winneth souls is wise. That is one of Solomon's 918 proverbs, and it's one that we want to humble ourselves before and let it remind us of a duty that, and it shouldn't be so, that believing in the sovereignty of God can relax our efforts toward others Though it shouldn't. We want to care and we want to wait for opportunities and we want to be ready when the Lord gives us opportunities to share the truth with others. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life and he that winneth souls is wise. What is a great life? What is a life well lived? What is a valuable life? What is a noble life with purpose and value? And these are questions we should ask ourselves and answer. Our religion is very simple because it has only two commandments that summarize all the rest of Scripture. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, soul, and strength. And thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And thy neighbor is not the person living next door to you. That is a, that's only a small part of your neighbor. Your neighbors are everyone that God allows you to meet with in life, and you're to love your neighbor. And the good Samaritan showed his love for his neighbor by taking care of the wounded Jew and taking him to an inn and providing funds for his recovery. We want to do that if we run into a wounded person, but we want to also be ready to give an answer for our faith and our hope if we're asked. What's a great life? I've given this to you before, but I want to give it to you again. It's a man that can have this epitaph over his casket. He loved God more than all others, and he was a tree of life to all others. He loved God more than all others, and he was a tree of life to all others. Jesus would say to Peter, Lovest thou me more than these? Peter, who loves me the most? You or the other disciples? Peter didn't want to jump on that bandwagon like he had earlier. 
about his great love for Jesus. He said, thou knowest that I love thee. And, and Jesus kept pushing him because Jesus wants to push us to love him dearly. We don't want to be guilty of emulation. That's competing with each other in natural things. But a little bit of competition in spiritual things is good. And that's why Jesus would ask that question. And it's why I would say to you, and I'll, I'm just giving you what I desire for each of you and what I desire for myself, that we could die with this epitaph. She loved God more than all others, and she was a tree of life to all others. That's our goal. That's a great life. That is a life well lived. That's a life keeping both of the two commandments that make up our religion, the love of God and the love of neighbor. Why are you alive? Do you know from those two commandments, you should greatly know what is your purpose? It's those two commandments, to love God and to love others. Pleasure is not your goal. Pleasure in life is not your goal. And if you will make those two goals your goals, you will find the greatest pleasure possible for your life. When you do things God's way, He knows more about pleasure than you can imagine. If you think Hollywood has a corner on pleasure, you don't know the true definition of lasting pleasure. Do things the Lord's way and He will give you abiding satisfaction and fullness of joy and great pleasures. The Bible says about heaven where Jesus sits, there are pleasures forevermore at thy right hand. None of their pleasures last. While they're getting drunk, there is the horrible pain of a hangover coming the next day. When they're committing fornication and adultery, there is the terrifying fear of sexually transmitted diseases and all the other problems that come with sexual infidelity. Why are you alive and what is your purpose? It's to love God and to help others. It's not pleasure. But if you'll do those two things, God will give you pleasure. There is hardly anything more, there isn't anything better than loving God and delighting in Him, whether it's the sunshine on the back deck or food or the Word of God or Proverbs or Romans 10. It's delighting in the Lord. That's the greatest pleasure in life. And second is loving your neighbor and sharing those things with another one of God's elect and sharing in the mutual joy. It's why Paul wanted to preach in Rome that we might be comforted together by the mutual faith, both of you and me. The Apostle Paul wanted to get to Rome to preach to the smiling faces of God's elect in that city so that together they could rejoice in the joyful sound of the gospel. Are you a tree of life? Are you a tree of life? A righteous man affects the lives of others for good. Are you a soul winner? These are the words from this proverb. Are you a soul winner? A wise man will work to save the lives of those around him. Do you affect the lives of people around you? The second commandment in our religion after loving God is to love others. And the most loving thing you can ever do for another person is to help them live a godly and a wise life. The best thing you can ever do for someone is to help them toward pleasing God with their lives and living a wise life so that they are not tormented in this world with sin and folly and that they meet the Lord Jesus Christ confidently in the day that's coming. That's the highest measure of love and that is the highest purpose for a life when it comes to other people in our relationships. Great persons are trees of life. Look at the Apostle Paul. Was he a tree of life? 
Was he a soul winner? We benefit 2,000 years later from the Apostle Paul and his zealous efforts to win souls like those in Romans chapter 10 and verse 1. We want to win souls from folly and from sin to righteousness and truth. That is what God has allowed us to do. Jesus Christ saves from the penalty of sin and secures heaven for us as we just sang by John Kent. John Kent was a wonderful songwriter. But even 200 years ago, when the majority of Baptists and other Protestant Christians believed in election, John Kent was too strong in doctrine, and most of his songs were rejected by most election-believing Calvinists. But I'm thankful for a few men, like Charles Spurgeon, that came along and wanted to include his songs. They're full of doctrine. You just sang high Calvinism, which is a form of Calvinism that understands the phases of salvation more than typical Calvinists, in that our eternal union with Christ is the foundation and basis for everything that follows. And I need to leave that point, but we just sang the wonderful doctrine of "'Twas with an everlasting love that God embraced His elect." And we can't change a, a person standing before God that way, but we can drastically affect a person's life like Peter did to Cornelius. Peter drastically changed the life of Cornelius. There's no higher calling in your relationship with other people than to help provide them some correction and instruction to please their Creator better. What, what is it? What can you do for other people that's better than that? To send them a birthday card? To take them out to eat on their birthday? And have some waitresses come out clanging pans for them? And singing happy, happy birthday? What do you do for other people? Do you pray for them? Do you prepare for them? And do you win them? Do you try to win them? We want them to enjoy the abundant life that God has intended for His children. The highest measure of love is perfecting another person to be able to stand before Jesus Christ. There is nothing else. Providing three squares a day, animals do that. What can we do for another person? It's to get them ready to meet the Lord. Husbands can help wives. Wives can help husbands. That's soul winning. That's soul encouraging. That's being a tree of life, even in a marriage, to help each other to please the Lord more perfectly. A tree of life bears all the fruit of godliness, truth and wisdom. A tree of life. It's a, it's a life. It's a man. It's a woman. It's a teenager. They're a tree of life because they're bearing fruit. And the fruit is godliness. The fruit is truth. The fruit is wisdom. They live a wise life. They speak the truth. They're able to defend the truth. They live righteously. They obey God's commandments. This helps men by seeing the example, find the good and peaceful existence that pleases God. It's being a tree of life. A soul winner has a life-changing effect on those around him. By his example, by the counsel he gives... He saves and improves lives of those sick and dying in ignorance and folly. Jesus described it as being a fisher of men when he called Peter, Andrew, James, and John from fishing for fish to fish for men. We're not apostles. The apostles were a very special group of men given very special powers and a very special assignment, and they fulfilled it. But we 
should be living the life of godliness that they told us to so that people would see the gospel adorned by our lives, see the light of God shining through us, and ask us questions about our hope. And so our lives need to be outstanding to bring honor and glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he that winneth souls is wise. There's two clauses in the proverb. Are they merely repetitive, or is one a little bit better than the other? I suggest this for your consideration. The first clause, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. Righteous men by their lives bear fruit of godliness, and other men are able to see it and copy those righteous men, and thus eat of the fruit of that tree. So the righteous man is somewhat passive. He's living for the Lord, he's living righteously, but he's just bearing fruit in his life. And others are able to see it, pick and eat by copying it, learning from him by asking questions, and so they're benefited. He's a tree of life to them. His example and his counsel, when they ask for it, benefits them. But the second clause is, he that winneth souls is wise. I suggest that it's a little more aggressiveness, a little more aggression here. And this is a person using winsome ways and winsome efforts and craftiness to help another person. It would be like the Apostle Paul when he said that we want to be as wise as serpents and harmless as doves. It would be like the Apostle Paul saying, I caught you with guile. The Apostle said that about catching the Corinthian saints. And so I suggest to you that the second clause is slightly better than the first because it's a man putting forth active efforts to help other people rather than just living a life that they benefit from. We want both. But we want to step it up as high as the Bible might indicate that we should step it up. And that is to actually think and plan and conspire with the Lord. Because that's why you pray that the Lord will be working on the inside of a person while we may give something to them on the outside. This proverb, Proverbs 11.30, speaking about soul winning, does not teach that any man can save a soul from eternal hell to heaven. Only the Lord Jesus Christ can do that. The divine transaction that makes men accepted before God is a transaction based on God's will, purpose, and grace, and the singular obedience of Jesus Christ to do it. So we don't have that burden upon us. That burden is on the Lord Jesus Christ and He has filled it perfectly. He said, it is finished when it comes to paying for our sins at the cross of Calvary. Jesus, I mean, God chose His people to eternal life and is going to glorify every one of them in heaven soon. And the Bible declares it repeatedly. He assigned the Lord Jesus Christ to live a perfect life for them and then to die a substitutionary death for them. And He'll not lose a single one. So there's no soul at risk. If we're thinking hell and heaven, there's many souls at risk. If we're thinking pleasing God in true doctrine and living a life of righteousness, holiness, truth, and wisdom, there's many souls at risk. Right. And we have responsibilities for those souls of varying degrees. I have responsibility for your soul. You have responsibility for your children's souls. You have responsibility for your wives' souls. You have responsibility for your grandchildren's souls. And we want to feel that responsibility. And we want to feel that burden. And we want to pray about it. And we want to have a heart's desire toward it.
It is your gospel privilege to show the truth to God's elect. Just like Paul wanted to do in Romans 10.1. Solomon did not have any vain idea of modern soul winners filling up heaven and getting names written in the book of life like so-called evangelists or soul winners do today. There's nothing like that in Solomon's life. Everything he wrote was for the people of Israel, which was the church of God of the Old Testament. He never spent one minute writing tracts and having them delivered to the Philistines or the Hittites or the Amorites. Now, he could have afforded it. He could have afforded an airplane drop of tracts that would blow your mind even before there was airplanes. But he didn't do that. You know, you ask an Arminian, how were people saved in the Old Testament? Well, I'm not sure. Did they keep the law? Did they believe in Him that was to come? If they say that one, what did they know about Him that was to come? What was His name? Did they know that they needed to invite Him into their heart? And see, that everything crumbles. We know how they were saved in the Old Testament because Peter confesses it at the Council of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15. He said, We believe that we shall be saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, even as they. He is pointing up the Gentiles, like Cornelius, and pointing out that God has saved them, all by the grace of God, and he's just tagging the Jews along behind Cornelius. We believe that we shall be saved, even as they, by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 15. Solomon wrote this proverb because Solomon was conveying wisdom to the people of God, the church of the Old Testament, the nation of Israel, especially his son. He wanted his son, while he was under the divine influence of God, writing these proverbs, to be a great king that would not be looking to build stuff, but would be looking to save souls. That would be looking to be a tree of life rather than planting orchards and trees everywhere to magnify his wealth. And he wants us to be soul winners and trees of life. And I want you to be a tree of life. How many people get to see fruit hanging from your branches and pick it by copying what you do or by asking you help and you give them wise counsel? How many people are you a tree of life to? That's going to be my constant question all the way till the bitter end. How much are you a tree of life? How many way, different ways have you helped people? How many different people have you helped in at least one way? Are you a tree of life? Do you win souls? You know, when we talk about the fact that we can't save a soul from hell to heaven and we give the Lord Jesus Christ that total prerogative that still leaves preaching the gospel, conveying truth, warning against sin to us. And we want to fulfill that. You know, in the Old Testament, the gospel was restrained to the nation of Israel only. But with the apostles, the Lord Jesus Christ told them to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, meaning Gentiles get to hear it now. He told them in Acts 1, which would be an explanation of that command from Mark 16, to wait in Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high, and ye shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem then in Judea, the surrounding area, then Samaria, a little farther away, then the uttermost parts of the earth. 
And they went and did it. In Colossians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul said that the gospel had come into all the world. In verse 6, and in verse 23, that the gospel had been preached to every creature which is under heaven. So when Jesus said in Mark 16, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, the Apostle Paul said in Colossians chapter 1 that it had come into all the world and that it had been preached to every creature. Because Jesus said that it would be. Jesus said that He would not send the armies to destroy Jerusalem as a demonstration that He was King of His kingdom until this gospel of the kingdom had been preached in all the world for a witness. So the world, as big as Jesus intended that world, the world of the apostles' era heard the message that Jesus Christ was going to judge His enemies and burn up their city. Those parables and those statements and those prophecies that are made in the Gospels. And then the end came. It actually happened. And what a confirmation it was to the Gospel. You know, there were confirmations by apostles being able to do miracles, which we can't do, so we can't fulfill the commission as it was given to the 11 apostles. They could perform any miracle at any time until the end of the New Testament era when their powers began to disappear. But then they preached that Jesus was going to destroy His enemies. We have seen Him alive after His resurrection. He is seated at God's right hand, but He is going to destroy those that crucified Him. And then it happened. What a confirmation. And the Gospel went out to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles believed it. And that's what we're studying Romans 10 for, is because the question automatically comes up, why didn't the Jews believe it? And why did the Gentiles believe it? Because God turned the message to the Gentiles and opened up our eyes and hearts, like He opened up the heart of Lydia, so that she attended unto the things by Paul, and yet the Jews couldn't stand Paul. They wanted to kill him every city he went to. What a drastic difference between the two. This proverb does teach that you can save a soul from error and folly, which cost men those two things, errors, believing in error, living in error, or foolishness that you live in can cost you your fellowship with God and lead you to trouble and destruction in your life. If you don't want to follow the rules of wisdom about finances in the Bible, you're going to get destroyed financially. If you don't want to practice God's rules for child training in your home, you're going to have your family ruined. It's very simple. You do it God's way, it works. You don't do it God's way, and it doesn't work. Wisdom leads to the good life. Look at Proverbs 3.18. There's so many statements like this in the book of Proverbs because the book of Proverbs is King Solomon selling wisdom to us. (coughs) And the Lord used some mighty literary methods to do it, like personification. And as I wrote in the proverb that is in your inbox right now, or it should be, chapter 9 and verse 8, where it refers to rebukers and so forth, and scorners, that's wisdom. In chapter 8 and verse 3, where it describes Lady Wisdom, she cries at the gates, she's at the entry of the city, she's at the coming in at the doors. He's just exalting wisdom every way that he can. Well, 3.18 puts it this way, wisdom. She is a tree of life to them that lay hold upon her. Now, here's another tree of life. So a righteous man finds wisdom, that is the wisdom of God found in the Bible, and he lives it by him eating fruit from the tree of life that God gave him, which is the Bible, and the fruit is wisdom, 
Other people see the changed life and the way that he does things and it is successful and that it works and they can copy him and he becomes a tree of life. And so we spread wisdom under the figure of speech, the metaphor of being a tree of life. She is a tree of life to them that lay hold upon her and happy is everyone that retaineth her. You want to get your hands on wisdom and you don't want to let go. You want to learn what's in the book of Proverbs and you don't want to let it go, including this one. Because we want to share the good life with others. Jesus called it the abundant life in John 10.10. Righteous men will help others find it. Look at chapter 8 and verse 36. There's another way you can live. You can neglect wisdom. You can think that the proverb commentaries are too boring for your valuable time. The Lord addresses you, not me. Proverbs 8.36, He that sinneth against me, that's Lady Wisdom saying, you neglect her and ignore her, wrongeth his own soul. All they that hate me love death. If you don't love wisdom, you must love death, because wisdom is a tree of life. And if you don't want to eat from the tree of life, then you must want to die in any part of your life. And we want to share that. Look at James chapter 5 with me. James chapter 5. Here's real soul winning. It's a shame that this verse isn't used more, and it would help clarify what it means to win souls. Amen. This is, this is the, the verse in the Bible that says the most about winning souls. The clearest description and definition of it. It's the last two verses of the book of James. James 5.19 Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth, And one convert him, let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. That is soul winning. Notice it's brethren. These are born again, believing, baptized brethren that James is addressing in these five chapters of the epistle of James. My brethren, if any of you. So he's addressing the 12 tribes scattered abroad of believing Jews that have been converted and baptized. If any of them slip out of the Christian faith, if any of them slip into a sin, then their brothers should convert them, turn them back, change them back to the way of righteousness and the way of truth. Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth and one convert him, This is an individual, one-on-one work of finding someone that's in error and getting them back into the truth. Let him know, let that one person know that he, which converteth a sinner, it's one-on-one, that's a singular sinner, from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. That man isn't going to hell. The word death there is not the second death. That word death there is death to fellowship. The Bible says, she is dead while she liveth. Speaking of a widow in 1 Timothy chapter 5 that's living for herself. She thinks she's alive, but she's really dead in the sight of God. The prodigal son, the father of the prodigal son said, this my son was dead. Well, he wasn't really dead, but he was dead to the, to the fellowship between the Father and the Son. And so we can save a soul from death. Believing a lie is a death. Not having the joy of a righteous life is a death. Being under the judgment of God is a death. 
There's various kinds of death in the Bible, and we can save men from it by converting them from their error back into the way of truth. That's what the Bible says. And we hide a multitude of sins. We cover up their sinful life because we get them back in the way of righteousness. There's no further sins, and the sins that they did commit are covered because they repent. It's a wonderful thing to do. The angels of heaven rejoice over one sinner that repents. And we get to rejoice along with them because we were instrumental in helping them. True soul winning is of brethren. True soul winning is of the elect. It's from error to truth, and it's called conversion, just like it's used twice in these two verses. To convert. If you convert one form of electricity, AC, DC, or AC to DC, or one one form of one thing to another thing, you're changing it. You're moving it. You're redirecting it. So we take a person that's in error and redirect them toward the truth. A person that's living foolishly, we redirect them toward wisdom. That's what the pulpit is for, and that's what our individual relationships are for, and that's what it means to be a tree of life and to win souls. Right there it says, "Let He shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. Now look at Proverbs 23, which I quoted to you in the sermon this morning. Proverbs chapter 23 about parents and their children. Let's try to make this practical and see it in the, in the Bible. You know, there, there are souls for you to save all around you. You're sitting in the middle of them. You're going to go home with some of them. Just open your mind and think. Do you know what Arminians and others have caused us to do? We're always thinking of some foreign mission field. I've got a $1,000 for anybody that can find me even a phrase in the New Testament epistles about going to a foreign mission field. 1000 for each. Even a phrase. Even a hint for church members to go to a foreign mission field. I'll tell you who went to the foreign mission field, and they went with power and ability that you'll never have. That's right. And they were the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Bible says they turned the world upside down. Praise the Lord. When it's done His way, they turned the world upside down, though they had never gone to seminary. Though they had never done any deputation work. They turned the world upside down and we're thankful for them. But you can save your children. Every parent should carry that burden very dearly. Why in the world? Would you bring children into this world unless you're going to save their souls? And I don't mean to heaven because that's in the the will of God. And if you and your wife married each other in faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and in devotion to God and you're both living righteously, we make the assumption on the authority of Scripture that your children are elect because that's the assumption the Bible makes. It's not our business to try to save souls that way. But we are supposed to teach our children the fear of the Lord. We are supposed to teach our children wisdom. And it should bother us every day that what can we do? What, how can we pray for our children, our grandchildren, and so forth? Look at Proverbs 23, and I've, I've referred to this once today already. Verse 13, withhold not correction from the child. Don't stop disciplining. Be tough. Practice tough love. Withhold not correction from the child. Don't say, well, I'm just going to let him get away with this. Don't say, I'm just going to let this one go this time for her. 
Don't hold back. For if thou beatest him with the rod, he shall not die. That isn't telling you that if you beat a child, they're not going to die from your beating. It's telling you if you'll beat him with the rod, he's not going to die an untimely death by getting involved in sins that leads him to an untimely death. That's what it means. So you want to discipline your children because you're saving their lives. You say, well, I know someone that wasn't disciplined at all and they lived to be 70. You don't even know what I'm talking about. You're so ignorant. Their 70 years were spent in dysfunction, depression, drugs, and drunkenness. Two divorces, and you're saying they were alive? Would you please explain that life to me? Withhold not correction from the child. If you'll beat him, you can save him. He shall not die. And this isn't the second death. This is, this is all the death of getting in trouble. Thou shalt beat him with the rod and shalt deliver his soul from hell. And that hell is the grave. And that soul is his body. That's his life of an untimely death for driving too fast because you didn't teach him to obey the rules of the road from getting, from committing adultery and having a jealous husband kill him from committing murder and being hung up by the magistrates of a nation. It's death, and you can save your son from it by beating him. Child discipline. Though Solomon used the words death and hell here, he didn't mean you can save your child from the lake of fire by disciplining him, but you can save him from hell on earth and an untimely death by your reproof and the rod. Solomon was a loving father. And Solomon gives us the picture of a great father with these verses and with other verses. How many times did he warn his son that the strange woman hiding under her skirt is not heaven? Which every foolish young man thinks. What was hiding under her skirt? Two words. One starts with D and one starts with H. And we've already been over them. Death and hell. Proverbs chapter 2. Proverbs chapter 5, Proverbs chapter 7, Proverbs chapter 9. Four times in the book of Proverbs, the the preacher, the wise preacher, addressed his son under that skirt, behind that kiss, behind those eyes, behind those flattering words, is death and hell. And so we've got to preach that in the pulpit and at home. We've got to impress it. We've got to enforce it. And if our children are too stupid to avoid death and hell, then we save them. Just like we would blockade a road if a bridge had washed out. We wouldn't let people continue to drive. Or if there was poison sitting in front of someone, we would run up and slap it out of their way and dash it against the wall lest they would drink of it. And so was Solomon. Good fathers save the souls of sons and daughters from this danger of fornication, especially in a generation of casual sex and easy relationships. It stinks. This loving father also warned his son about odious women. How many verses do we have? Look at 12. Well, you're there at 23. Do 21. It's all over the book of Proverbs. I wonder how Solomon knew. Do you think he had run into a few odious women in his thousand wives? Verse not 9 of Proverbs 21, It is better to dwell in a corner of the housetop than with a brawling woman in a wide house. A wise father is going to keep his son away from an odious woman. And so there's warnings throughout the book of Proverbs. King Lemuel's mother wrote chapter 31, and it's about how to find the perfect wife. 
And so parents should be teaching their children from the, from as soon as they're able to comprehend the difference between a good woman and a bad woman and then enforcing it. That's what Solomon did. That's what David did. That's what good men are supposed to do. And that's what we're supposed to do to be trees of life and to be soul winners. This is a way that you can win a soul. You can save a soul from death. You can save a soul from hell. And it's the death and hell of a whorish woman, an odious woman, to get a virtuous woman. Right. And it's explained in the book of Proverbs. Both parents should be involved in this because look at chapter 31. That's written by a woman. That's written by King Lemuel's mother, and, and she loved her son. And she wanted her son to have a great woman. Forget, think of your family. Every one of you, think of your family. Children, siblings, parents, uncles, cousins. Think of your family. Men, you should be proactively leading because Abraham did. He would command his household to keep the way of the Lord. That's a soul winner. There's so many fathers that lay down the job. They're AWOL, absent without leave because they're lazy. They're chicken. They're self-centered. They're selfish. They're worried about money instead of caring about the souls of their children. Think of your family. Abraham commanded his household to keep the way of the Lord. And these commandments that I have given thee, thou shalt speak to them in the, when thou risest up in the morning, when thou liest down at night, when thou walkest by the way, and when thou sittest in thine house. Can you tell me anything else the Israelite children did than get up, go to bed, travel, or sit in the house? Was there anything else? Or were the dads supposed to be communicating truth all the time? This is the way that's right. This is what ought to be done. Oh, Isaiah, do you know why Hezekiah wanted to live 15 more years? And do you know what he promised God if God gave him 15 more years? 38, 19, the living, the living. This is Isaiah. The, he shall praise thee as I do this day. The father to the children shall make known thy truth. That is being a soul winner. Conveying truth. And do you know how easy God makes it for parents? The child arrives with a blank slate. There is a, there's a blackboard there that's their mind, their heart, and you have a piece of chalk and you get to fill it. You can fill it with television. You can fill it with carnal worldly friends. You can fill it by letting them have music. You can fill it by letting them be on Facebook. You can fill it by letting them have their own sin phone. You can do it any way you want, but you better enforce that that is kept pure and right and true and godly. And it's work. If you don't like the work, don't have them. It's work. Mothers, you have your role. In the book of Proverbs, it's called the law of thy mother. Chapter 1, verse 8. Chapter 6, verse 20. Look at what Eunice and Lois did for a young man named Timothy. He was Paul's best because he had two great women in his life that were trees of life and soul winners. Look at Samuel because he had a mother like Hannah. Many parents shirk these duties. Think of your family. Do you have any siblings? Look at John chapter 1. John chapter 1. This is exciting. Do you really, do you really want the rules for success in life? It's to love God and it's to love others. What is, what's included in loving others? It's to keep them from sinning and to prepare them to meet the Lord. We get so distracted. We're tired. We're lazy. We're selfish. The confrontation is horrible. You may think that I love confrontation. I hate confrontation. I love peace. I love peace. I want everybody to be happy with each other. I want everything to be said good. I don't want there to be any problems. I know all about those feelings. And children are going to press you 
and you come home and you're tired and you've had confrontation during the day and you just, you just sigh and you, how oh, do I have to deal with this? Yes, we have to deal with it and we should want to deal with it because we should love other souls more than ourselves and so we should deal with it because even if we're tired and we're exhausted, we want to save their souls so that when they stand before God, they can stand there confidently and we save their lives from trouble and ruin. And it's hard, and it's work, and if, we, if, if we're going to have them, we've got to do it. And if we're not going to do it, we shouldn't have them. What about your siblings? John chapter 1, th- these are touching verses. John chapter 1, verse 40. One of the two which heard John speak, John has just said, Behold the Lamb of God. And he points out his cousin Jesus. One of the two which heard John speak and followed him, that is, Jesus, was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first findeth his own brother Simon and saith unto him, We have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Look at that, brotherly love. Look at two brothers committed to the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. I have found the Messiah. And he brought him to him. He did whatever it took to get Jesus and Simon right there together. And did it work? Was there a use for Simon in the kingdom of heaven? Thou art Simon the son of Jonah, thou shalt be called Cephas, which is by interpretation a stone. That was brotherly soul winning. It just keeps going. Look at verse 43. The day following, Jesus would go forth into Galilee and findeth Philip. So Jesus finds Philip and saith unto him, follow me. Now Philip was of Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip find, what? Didn't, wasn't Philip happy to follow the Lord? Jesus said, follow me. But Philip leaves the Lord because he's going to go find somebody. He's going to go fish for someone. He's going to go win someone. Philip findeth Nathanael and saith unto him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said unto him, can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? So he runs into a little opposition. So they make fun of you. So they question what you're saying. Are you going to get discouraged? No, because it's the Lord and it's the truth. Philip saith unto him, come and see. And you know the rest of that, don't you? Oh, it's wonderful. An Israelite indeed in whom there is no guile. Mothers, oh, siblings, our family, those that we work with, those that we, customers, any anyone that we run into with and we see that there's an opportunity, they're looking, they're asking, they're thinking, they're, de- they're deliberating. They're saying, I don't know whether I should do this or not. I don't know whether I should cremate my mother or not. Well, I, I have a little, I have a little suggestion for them. If they're wondering about cremating their mother, I have a few slides for it. Remember the pictures of mommy? When you put mommy in and she came out and she still had big chunks of bone. So they put mommy in a garbage disposal so you could grind mommy up into powder and put her in a little jar. Well, it, it's that serious to me. It should be that serious to you. If someone's deliberating over it, have you ever thought about the Bible, the pains they went to to bury? You know, Abraham just didn't want to burn up Sarah. He didn't own any property. He didn't have a cemetery. He didn't have a county permit to get into any cemetery. So he went and bought, bought a plot of ground for a burial place for his wife Sarah. And he paid market value for it. And you know, there's so many more. And Where would you get the answers about cremation? Would you go to Britannica Encyclopedia and look up C, then R, then E? Or would you go to Google and say, is there anyone out there that believes that cremation is wrong? 
or would you go to LetGodBeTrue.com and hit the little magnifying glass up there and just write in one word, cremation. I got a few thoughts for you. Because you hired me to do that. I'm your hired servant. There's just a couple. You can read it in a half an hour. Because I hate cremation. But you know, if somebody has it in their will, that they want to be cremated, then let them be cremated. But if we have a chance to persuade them against it, we want to persuade them against it, we want to do it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Even when John the Baptist had his head cut off, what do you think they did to him? Just throw him into a river? Or did they go get the two pieces and put them together and bury him? That's just an example. You got, you got to be, you know, a young man, and I love the question, and I'm wishing I could go another two hours, and you're glad that I'm not going to, but, but I love the zeal of a young man asking me between services, I want help. It's hard to tell from a pulpit exactly what you should do because every case is uniquely different. You have to learn something called wisdom and discretion and prudence because every case is different. You have got to understand the dynamics of that person. How, what do they believe? How open are they to truth? How well have they listened to little things I've dropped in the past? Is this subject big pill or small pill for them to swallow? Just all these different questions need to, you need to just, you think of them intuitively so that you know how to address a particular situation. You know, it's a shame that there's so much emphasis put on foreign missions when we have so much missionary work to do at home. There are people right now that you could seek to save from pain or trouble caused by their error, folly, or sin. Don't look for greener pastures. Start right at home. Have you ever helped those deluded by Islam, Buddhism, or Hinduism? Have you ever helped others get free from Sabbatarianism, a superstition about Saturday that God gave Israel that doesn't apply to Christians? Have you corrected any damning delusions of Roman Catholicism like Mariolatry, or the Rosary, or Easter Sunday, or a thousand other errors of that church to Roman Catholics. There's only 1.1 billion of them around. Surely you've run into a Roman Catholic before. I once knew a Roman Catholic that traded with me at a bank. And this trader wasn't interested in the things of the Lord at all. But whenever we'd be out of town, and we would hit the sack in a room with two beds... And it was dark. Before I'd let that traitor get to sleep, I would lay some little bomb on him about truth and Roman Catholicism and life and a creator. I never got a syllable back. Never. I'd pray every time we ate. I carried Bibles in my briefcase. Uh, He knew what I was studying to do. Never got any encouragement. So don't be discouraged. I never got the least bit of encouragement. Then I moved here to South Carolina, and I find out that he visited the church that I had been going to, and I had to find that out from someone else. You never know. You never know, but whenever you get a little opportunity, you think, you know, I think I could get away with dropping a little bomb right here. Drop a little bomb. That's just my expression. You know, it's the name. Anyway, it's just a little bomb. 
What I mean by that is something that will make them think. Because you want to make them think. Because I'll tell you they're going to think when they meet the Lord Jesus Christ. And they're going to think when they face the dilemmas of life without the wisdom of the Bible. When Paul had a moment with Festus, what did he reason of? Or, or Felix? He reasoned of three things. When he sat with righteousness, temperance, judgment to come. Those are the three things he reasoned with. We want to think of what approach can I take with this person, and it's going to be unique with each person. I always, any one of you come to me and say, I want to see my so-and-so converted. My, I always ask, what subjects interest them? Find out what interests them in the Bi- true subjects or subjects outside the Bible that the Bible has bearing on. Go to something on common ground. We don't have to start off with what makes us the most different from them because we want to win them. Have you protected family and friends from Benny Hinn and Joseph Smith? Do you know anything about Mormonism? Do you know anything about Joseph Smith? Have you helped others have a better marriage by the example of your marriage? By instruction or by warning to them? How about better finances by the same three means? What were those three means? Oh, it was in the previous sentence. It was, uh, it was, what was it? Example, counsel or advice, warning. And those three things are what we should do on a lot of different subjects. How about child training? How about career progression? And some of you do some of these things, but I want you to, exu- to I want to exhort you to do them more and more. Getting along with others, submitting to our government and avoiding rabble rousers. Do you want a way that right now in this country you can show a difference between yourself and most Christians? Submit to President Obama. Right. He is the president of this country, the rightful authority over this country, as much as you are the rightful authority in your home, men. Right. And if you will do that, there will be others that will wonder about your confidence and assurance and security that everything is going to work out when we see so many bad decisions being made at the top, but the Lord's going to take care of us, and it gives you a perfect opportunity to speak about the fact, well, there is one higher than President Obama, and he's the one I trust in. I trust in the Lord Jesus Christ that sits at the right hand of God, and he has a rod of iron in his hand, and he's ruling the nations. And you get to talk about the Lord Jesus Christ. He's King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Have you ever heard that title about him? Do you know anything about Nebuchadnezzar? He was just a little bit worse than President Obama. I speak as a fool when I say that. He was far worse. Do you know what the King of Heaven did to the King Nebuchadnezzar? He put him out to pasture for seven years. And you have an opportunity. That when the Bible says that people are going to ask you a reason of the hope that is within you, our government gives you an opportunity to show your hope in the Lordship of Jesus Christ over the affairs of this world. You know, we can warn and we can advise and we can show by example good speech habits, honoring parents, and learning the Bible. Look at Leviticus 19.17. Look at Leviticus 19.17. Do you want to see God's definition of love? It's a little different than ours. Hugging has its place, but it's not in this verse. Birthday cards have their place, but they're not in this verse. Leviticus 19.17 Thou shalt not hate thy brother in thine heart. 
Thou shalt in any wise rebuke thy neighbor and not suffer sin upon him. That verse teaches us that if you don't rebuke a neighbor when you have an opportunity to keep him back from sin, now this is the church. This is the church of the Old Testament. If you have an opportunity to warn somebody about a sin that they're committing and you don't do it, then you're showing hatred toward that person. True love rebukes. Like Proverbs 27 and other places teach us. Read it. This is serious business. When you have an opportunity, speak up about backbiting. Speak up about bitterness. Complaining. Listen to these words. Cremation. Drunkenness. Envy. Evil surmising. Foolish talking. Fornication. Gluttony. Grudges. Horoscopes. Jesting. Malice. Mode of baptism. Pagan holidays. Pride. Purloining. Scorn. Sedition. Self-love. Slander, sodomy, tailbearing, temperance, witchcraft, etc., etc., etc. What the Bible teaches. But it's to brethren. We want to keep each other out of those things. We want to be soul winners. We want to be pressing in every joint and every part of this church, working together until we grow up to the full measure of the stature of the Lord Jesus Christ. We need each other. Are you a tree of life? Are others thankful for you helping them please God? Do you win souls? How many of you turn to the truth? Are you known for wisdom hanging from your branches? Are you a lighthouse from life's storms for those in need? Do you help others acquire wisdom and its benefits? You have to answer the questions. Because the verse says, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. A righteous man will be a tree of life. And he that winneth souls is wise. When you're with others, what do you talk about? Do you gently bring all conversations back to profitable purposes for their good and God's glory? You should be conscientious on the phone as well. What is the content of your emails like? What do you text to others? The weather? Sports score? What could you text? What could you tweet? Get busy. What witty inventions we have to communicate. Are you ready to win others? There's several basics. First, you've got to have a godly example by total submission to God and good works. Look at 1 Peter 3.15. 1 Peter 3.15. If you're going to be a soul winner, there's things you've got to do. 1 Peter 3.15 is interesting in its layout and in the thoughts that it leaves with us. 1 Peter 3.15, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Do you know what it starts off with? For you to be a soul winner, you have got to set apart the God of heaven as the only reason that you're alive and the great love of your soul. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. In your heart. To sanctify means to set apart for holy use. God is all there is to you. God and His Word is all there is to you. The Holy God of Heaven is all that counts. All I want to do is please Him. You start by setting your heart that way. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. From the heart outward, you are going to be holy. From the heart outward, you are going to please God. And be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. How can you be ready always, and how can you be ready to give a man an answer 
meekly and with fear unless you're prepared. You know, when you're not prepared, what do you fall back on? Emotion and volume. You don't need emotion and volume if you're well prepared. Then you can answer meekly and you can give them a reason of the hope that is within you and you can always be ready if you're always in the Bible. If you take just a few minutes a day and are always feeding yourself with the Word of God, you are going to be able to answer questions that come your way. And if you're sanctifying the Lord God in your heart, you're going to get the questions. Those are two basics. First, you've got to have a godly example by sanctifying the Lord God in your heart. Let your light so shine. Remember, young people, the theme of a retreat that you had a while back? Let your light so shine. Get it out from underneath that bushel basket. Get it out from underneath that bed. Let men see your good works. But you've got to have good works for them to see. Second, you need to learn God's truth and wisdom to be able to give answers. Proverbs 22 talks about having the certain words of truth in your mouth to be able to give to others. Right. So you need those two things. An example of good works so that they ask and the ability to answer. Remember, it only takes, it takes only a little knowledge to believe something. It takes more to teach it to be a soul winner like this proverb, and it takes a whole lot if you're going to try to deal with scorners or fools. Paul had to rebuke the Hebrew Christians because they weren't even up to level two soul winning, right. which is enough knowledge to teach, which is a shame. How many of you could teach the five phases? All of you should be able to teach the five phases in your sleep. You've heard it so many times. The more you know by study and preparation, the less likely you'll lose control and lose graciousness in a discussion. You know, the Bible says in Colossians 4, 6, let your speech be always with grace. The Bible says in Proverbs twenty two eleven, he that loveth pureness of heart, for the grace of his lips, the king shall be his friend. Well, see, we're not using Dale Carnegie approach. We're using the God of heaven's approach. And the God of heaven's approach is starting with our heart. We sanctify the Lord God there. We are committed to purity of living. That affects our mouths. And even kings want us around, like the kings of Babylon wanted Daniel around, like the kings of Egypt wanted Joseph around, like the king of Persia wanted Esther around, and wanted Mordecai around. But it starts here. And we're gracious in our speech, and we're slow. We hear them out. The Bible says, He that answereth a matter before he heareth it, Do you know how excited we can get about truth sometimes? Someone will bring something up, and immediately, there we go. We've only heard two-thirds of one sentence, and we think we know where they're headed, and we want to jump on that one because we're going to be a soul winner today. But the Bible says, He that answereth a matter before he heareth it, it is a shame to him. He that hasteth with his lips is a fool. There is more hope of a fool than of a man that's hasty in his speech. So we've got to slow down, listen well. These are just little tips. You want to be gracious. And it all starts with sanctifying the Lord God in your heart and studying to learn His Word. The more you learn His Word, you're going to learn all those little points the book of Proverbs teaches about a soft answer turneth away wrath, about a righteous man studieth to answer, but the, the mouth of fools pour out foolishness, and so on and so forth by being in the Word of God. You'll learn those things, and I want you to be soul winners. How much have you truly helped those who've known you? The people that have known you in your life, how much have you truly helped them? It's a, it's a burden to all of us, and it should be. It should be convicting to all of us. Are they pleasing God with their lives? And how much of that is due to your efforts toward them? 
Are they enjoying the abundant and prosperous life of a person walking with God because they knew you? Are they thankful for the enriching effect you've had on their lives in word and in deed? How much? We all have to ask, including me, how much have we truly helped those who've known us? How many have you helped among your acquaintances? Ten? A hundred? If you were to go home and sit down with a piece of paper, who's converted and living a better and wiser life because of me, and you made the list, how long would it be? People whose lives are better because you have shared God's word with them, you've been a tree of life to them, and you have won their soul in at least one measure. And they know it was you. And the Lord knows it was you. How many are further leveraging your life by being trees of light to yet others? You know, the, the world gets excited about multi-level marketing, which they've renamed because that got a bad reputation, so they renamed it network marketing for overpriced stuff. But, you know, this is the best use of that concept of multi-level marketing or network marketing is sharing the truth with someone else. Did Andrew getting Peter help the kingdom of God very much? From the record of the Bible, which of those two helped the kingdom of God the most? Peter. But it was Andrew that got him. You never know. You never know. You know, Ananias got the first few days with Saul of Tarsus. I wonder what he thought as he heard about this man that ran wild in the Roman world, preaching the gospel everywhere that he got to spend some time with. You know, Aquila and Priscilla saw a man. Do you remember the reputation of Apollos in Acts 18? Mighty in the scriptures, an eloquent man, fervent in spirit, but all he knew was the baptism of John the Baptist. Aquila and Priscilla, two tent makers, took him home and explained to him the way of God more perfectly, gave him a letter to go visit the church at Corinth, and it says he mightily convinced the Jews and that publicly that Jesus was the Christ. When the Apostle Paul wrote the epistle to the Corinthians, he had to say that there was a faction in that church that said, we are of Apollos. Apollos was an influential man, and how did he get there? Two tent makers. That's exciting. To have a downline of people who love and believe the truth. How big is your downline? Oh, Lord, help us. We're pitiful. We can do better. God has great delight in those that turn others to righteousness. Look at Daniel, and I'll close with this. Daniel chapter 12. Daniel chapter 12. We live in a supposedly Christian country. We live in a supposedly Christian state. We live in a supposedly buckle of the Bible belt or something like that. So many of the people around us are, are already claiming to be Christians. They're very much like the audience that Paul would go looking for that were already toward the truth, already toward wisdom, and he's just going to help them on the rest of the way. It's not like we're in Penang, where it's a Muslim nation, and the Muslims don't like aggressive Christians. We're in America. We have opportunities starting at home and spreading out. Look at Daniel chapter 12, speaking of the New Testament era. And they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. Is this a chief goal for your life, and how well are you meeting it? Who have you influenced? If you're supposed to love your neighbor, how have you done it? 
And do you have any results for it? Is there any fruit? Have you been a tree of life to them? We can do better. I want you all to have this epitaph. He loved God more than all others. He was a tree of life to all others. May God give you wisdom. May God give you opportunity. May God give you a receptive audience. May he give the word of the Lord free course to glorify it. May he give you great discernment and perception. Stephen the deacon, boy, when the Lord blessed Stephen the deacon, he stood before the learned wisdom of the Jews and confounded them. And the Lord can do that. If you learn his word, this word will confound men. Remember what David said? Because I meditate in thy precepts, I know more than my enemies, my teachers, and the ancients. But you've got to meditate in God's word. May the Lord bless this little reminder to you and to me that we use this life that God's given us and we use all the truth that he's given us by sharing it with others. The second commandment. Amen. Amen. Amen.